Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast, Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series, Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series, SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Moriarty. Hooray! Oh. We're back. Oh, okay. I was like, whoa, you're... <laughs> what are we celebrating? <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi, guys. You know what we're celebrating? Knockback Wave 5, my friend. Very exciting. Do you know what this is? This is the Empire Strikes Back of Knockback oh. Waves. Oh, now, the, I, I was thinking about this. Yeah, okay. 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 This is one of the first things I wrote like two months ago when I started researching these topics. I was going to refer to it this way. But here's the problem. That means waves one, two, and three were the prequels. Right. Not good. Right. And then we have seven and eight. Yeah. We're just, that's foreboding. I yeah. don't know. I think we should abandon this reference. <laughs> it's not. This is not the. Not, this is not the Empire Strikes. It back. all goes downhill from here. I guess <laughs> is what we're saying. Well, we are. We have reconvened here in Santa Monica, as you guys might recall. Let me see. Let me think here. We did Wave One here in Santa Monica. Wave Two and Three, I think, in Philly. No. Mm. Wave One in Santa Monica. Wave Two in Philly. Wave Three in. Mm, what 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 was it? Yeah, no, I think because we did two in a row at your house and then two in a row. Yeah, here that's now. what it was. It was two and three. It must have been. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, now so two in a row here in Santa Monica. I guess. Yes, that's what trying to make. Yes, we. Yes, well, it's good uh, to have you back. It's great to be back. It's raining, which is weird. Rainy Santa Monica. A little weird. Yeah, a little, a little weird. Strange. It's a little early for it to be raining, but but nonetheless, it is raining and and we're enjoying it. And I feel like the rain is good for this episode of Knockback because it's. You know, it brings in some feelings of some foreboding horror and oh. and things of this nature. And today's topic, Dagan, is one that's near and dear to both of our hearts, of course. It's Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Yes! The 1997 PlayStation 1 and Saturn classic. Yes, If sir. you had the unfortunate reality of playing it on Saturn. I'm moving around papers. Sorry. <laughs> Making a lot of noise over here. All the printouts. Now, before we get any further, Dagan, let's yeah. uh, outline things a little bit. Knockback is published every week on free feeds, but if you want it a week early and ad-free, if we ever start to put ads into it, and you just want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash Stand. Those perks carry over to my other shows, including Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, Fireside Chats, which is an eclectic interview series, and SideQuest, my YouTube channel, all about video games, sometimes, you know, video essays, sometimes Let's Plays, etc. And you can also support the show on Patreon to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to the show, of which, Dagan, and this is what the paper was, the sounds of the paper, are all of the questions that were submitted for this wave. Look how thick that is. It's 18 pages worth of questions. It's the Holy Bible Not 18. It is. It's it's at least as big as Genesis and and Leviticus. (laughs) But this is every question that we got submitted to us. That's fantastic. For all of the nine topics we're going to record for Knockback Wave 5. And as usual, I've included everyone. I've tried to include everybody's questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. I don't want to leave anyone out. 
Occasionally, we'll, we'll say your name and then read someone else's comment with their name attached to it because you submitted a similar kind of comment. But nonetheless, I want everyone to feel included, and that is the only way to interact with the show. So your support on Patreon is essential to us as, as it always has been and always will be. Look at you be. guys with these comments. There's a lot, man. This is ma- this is magnificent. We got a lot, and I've, I've annotated them as well. Now, please. Dagan, Symphony of the Night. It's a hell of a, hell of a thing. It is. It's a hell of a game. And when I came up with this topic, a uh, list of topics, I should say, because you and I go back and forth on the topic list. You made the entire list last time. I made them for, I guess, one and three and five. You made them for two and four, the waves. And I put this one at the very top. I wanted to record this one first and publish this one first. And it's coincidental because it's going to go up around Halloween, which is interesting. That was not intentional. But the even crazier coincidence is that we came up with this list of topics, I don't know, two months ago. And Symphony of the Night is coming to PlayStation 4 around the time that Look at this. this is going to go live. So it's just very serendipitous. I feel like Konami actually planned that. Around, Konami hasn't around planned anything. Show. That's true. Konami That's doesn't plan dope. things. That's now, true. before we get into the you know, the game, what we think of it, the history, yes. the memories, I do want to read a trio of comments from the audience oh, just to kick trio. things right off. Okay. Because Please. these are more comments about the space and time and not necessarily the game itself where we can get into the substance of it, which, of course, we're going to do here on Knockback. Okay, but look, first, oh. I have to say, there's a very exciting news. Oh, it's I... the return of dad jokes. Oh, okay. Yes, I got so many requests. We got two requests for the return of dad jokes. Two, and guess two what? Of them. Yep. That was enough for me. Okay, fair enough. So here we go. You do are it. you ready? Mm. Okay. Why did the vampire drive on the highway? I don't know. Somebody told him it was a main artery. Ah. Oh. 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 All right. That's enough. That's it. That's all you have is one. uh, I have another one. Oh, okay. Would you like it? Yeah, please. Probably going in descending order of quality, but what the hell? What's a vampire's favorite soup? (laughs) I don't know. Scream of tomato. (laughs) (laughs) So bad. That's awful. That's a really bad one. These are dad jokes. Yeah, they're dad jokes. They're dad jokes. But also, Dagan, you, I had forgotten. I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself as well because obviously we try to integrate some new features into every wave to differentiate them from different waves. And you had wanted to do a new feature. Now, are we putting that at the end of the episodes? What do you think? Well, because are you still going to do the lightning round at the end of every show? You know what? I actually didn't have, I was thinking about replacing the lightning round with something. So maybe we could do that new feature at the end. So, okay. So we'll try it. it. Let's leave it. I'm going to punt. Okay. All right. Well, football terminology. I like it. Now I'm going to get back to these three things that I wanted to read before we get into it. Let's they kind of go. set the stage, okay. as it were. James Aquilina wrote in and said, Can we all take a moment to appreciate how stellar a title Symphony of the Night is? It's so badass. It is a great name for a Castlevania game. Here in the West, we very rarely up to this point got mainline Castlevania games with subtitles. We got Bloodlines on Genesis. We got Rondo of Blood, which we're going to talk about, but we really didn't get Rondo of Blood. Very specific and very certain people got Rondo of Blood. So it was cool to see Castlevania stitched with a name like that, which is very commonplace 21 years later. Every Castlevania game now isn't numbered. It has a subtitle. So I agree with you, James. That's a great point, James. Symphony of the Night. But what's better, Symphony of the Night or Nocturne in the Moonlight? Is it Nocturne in the Moonlight? or oh, Nocturne... the Japanese name. Yeah. Is it Nocturne of the Moonlight or Nocturne in the Moonlight? Hold on. I'm always going to defer to the Japanese name as being better because it's more authentic. Yeah. We'll talk about that when we do the episode about Link to the Past as well because that has a, a cooler name as yeah. well. Yeah. Nocturne in the Moonlight. Nocturne yeah. in the Moonlight. I think I like that better. A little more complicated. They're so cool. But I like how they're usually musically themed, which is very cool. John Lynch wrote into us and said, this isn't really a question, but more of a comment on Symphony of the Night. I knew I was getting a PlayStation for Christmas, 
Me and my brother both were allowed to have one game. I asked for Castlevania. My brother asked for Mortal Kombat Mythologies Sub-Zero. We each got them, but to my horror, the game I opened was that turd Sub-Zero game. I'm sorry to hear that, John. <laughs> that game shame. was bad. That's a shame. And finally, Phil Crone says, One of the big things I remember about the pre-internet era of gaming was sometimes not even learning a major game existed until I saw a review. Symphony of the Night was a game I didn't know about until I saw it featured on the cover of the second issue of PSM. That was my first issue of PSM PlayStation Magazine as well. Oh, wow. Final Fantasy VII was the first issue. I remember that. I just find it quaint that that's how I used to discover games. And he says Alucard looks like Elvis on the cover. He does. You guys should go look that up. Oh, I want to look at that. In case you were curious. A great way to set the stage for what I would deem, Dagan, and I don't know how you feel about this proclamation, but very easily one of the greatest games of all time. Certainly has to be top five and maybe even higher than that. Not only for its major influence on games to come after it, but just specifically about how good it was at the time and how good it still is literally 21 years, almost to the date since it was released. Absolutely. So what are your memories of Symphony of the Night and how that contrasted with your Castlevania experience? Because we were Castlevania fans for years before this game actually ever came out. That's actually true. And, well, you know how I always kind of frame Symphony of the Night was that this game came out in an era where we were sort of in the throes of all the... 3D polygonal graphics, polygonal graphics, you know, of things. And we were sort of immersing ourselves in things. And for me, I think I was kind of accepting it. You know, we had Mario 64 and Tomb Raider. And, you know, for my very specific sort of trajectory, Battle Arena Toshin Den and all these very, you know, polygonal 3D stuff. And it seemed like video games were going, especially home video games, were going in that direction. And, you know, we did have the 2D sprite-based graphics still in the arcade that we really loved. We had, you know, all the Capcom fighters, the, you know, the SNK, Neo Geo stuff, you know, from Darkstalkers and Samurai Showdown. And, you know, we had at that time Street Fighter versus X-Men. So we, you know, Metal Slug, whatever, we still, that stuff still existed, but it was mostly in arcades. It seemed like home video games were really going in that polygonal direction. So when this came out, it was actually a palpable shock. We were like, oh, I guess this is this could still be a thing. And that's what really made it stand out to me. I don't know if that was, you know, looking at it through my more, you know, through a more artistic lens as an animator. And I was in I was in animation school at the time that this game came out. But we were thrilled. We were thrilled with it. And I was really trying to remember I had a roommate who was an avid gamer. And I don't know if he bought it or I bought it, but we had it at the house, at the apartment. And I remember just, you know, we would just play it every night you know, for hours. And we were so into it, you know, how beautiful it was, you know, how lush the graphics were and how fluid the animation was. And, you know, also how, you know, just how immersive the gameplay was. Of course, this is like the definition. This game is the definition of appeal and sort of like satisfying gameplay, you know. And you said it really well before too, Kyle. Like this game really is one of those games that lives up to all the hype. You know, nothing is overstated about this game. It's just really a wonderful, it's just a wonderful game from A to Z. And it's widely regarded as one of the best, not only one of the best PlayStation games, you know, on PS1, on PlayStation, the original PlayStation, but widely regarded as one of the best video games ever made. And I can't wait to get into it with you. It's going to be fun because our knowledge of and experience with Castlevania leading up to this point was not like this. And I think that a lot of younger or more inexperienced gamers or just newer gamers, people that weren't paying attention to that franchise don't realize that 
this isn't Castlevania. Like, this isn't what we knew as Castlevania. This was a major risk for Konami to make a game like this. And it wasn't what people went in thinking. And I can say from my own experience, Dagan, that I remember seeing just that this game was coming out. There was like a cover of it or something on a shelf at EB Games at Fox Run Mall in New Hampshire. And I saw it. I looked at the back. It looked like Castlevania. I saw that Alcard, which we knew from Castlevania 3, which was one of our favorite games right, growing up, right. is the protagonist. But I had no idea that it had like this role-playing kind of slant and this nonlinear Metroidvania, what we know as Metroidvania slant because of this game. And so I went and bought it having no idea that it wasn't one of the old Castlevania games. And at first was a little disappointed about that, but quickly became not disappointed at all. And if you read back, let's give a little history before we get into it, because sure. if you read back about why this game came to be and how it came to be, I think that it was actually codenamed something like the bloodletting and okay. Castlevania's team and Konami, you know, the internal Castlevania team at Konami, I really should say, didn't feel like the stage by stage layout of the original Castlevanias from Castlevania one, not so much two, but Castlevania, because Castlevania two obviously influenced this game. And we'll talk about that. But Castlevania one, three, four bloodlines, Rondo of blood, which is the prequel to this game and a couple of other Castlevania games that we didn't get here. All were stage-by-stage stage games that once you mastered, you could beat. You could beat the original Castlevania in 20 minutes straight up, and it's over. And they didn't think for the 32-bit generation, this new generation of games, that that sort of game would be appropriate for their audience. And that's like a really, really super interesting thing. And so they brought in a team that ended up being led ultimately by Koji Igarashi later on. And we know Koji Igarashi as kind of the producer slash director slash kind of lead of these Castlevania games all the way up through, I think, Harmony of Dissonance in 2008. And obviously is making Bloodstained Ritual of the Night now. But they brought these guys in and asked them to make a game, a sequel to Rondo of Blood, which is an obscure PC engine slash TurboGrafx-16, really Turbo Duo game that no one played really in the West. More people played it in Japan to make a sequel to that game. And they did it by combining elements of Castlevania 2, Simon's Quest, and Castlevania 3 by drawing characters from Castlevania 3. And you actually see all the protagonists from Castlevania 3 in right. Symphony of the Night, if you guys recall, because you fight them, which is fucking awesome. Yeah, it's so cool. So they created something that is more in the vein of Super Metroid, but I couldn't necessarily find anything in my own research dig that yeah. indicated to me that they really were influenced at all by Super Metroid. Now, they must have been in some way. The maps are very similar. Yeah. The layout, the nonlinearity of it is very similar. It's only three years removed from Super Metroid. But... This game really does stand alone. And what I like about it most, Dave, is you brought up the polygonal nature of games at this time. And the reason why PS1 games and N64 games and Saturn games just do not hold up. They just don't hold up anymore. They look like shit and they often play like shit is because of this emphasis on early polygonal graphics. So if you look at, you know, even Mario 64, which I know people love as a gameplay experience and all that kind of stuff, the game looks like trash. Yeah. And the thing about Castlevania is that it's still, Symphony of the Night, is that it's still one of the most beautiful pixel art games ever. Not only from an aesthetic standard point, but also from an animation standpoint. And it stands up because it didn't try to reinvent the wheel. It only kind of tried to reinvent the wheel. And that's what I like. It would have been more obvious for them to have gone in a 3D direction. And they did do that twice on N64, as you guys might recall, with Castlevania 64 and Legacy of Darkness, its sequel. Right. Which were great games. I like those games. A lot of people shit on them. But... What I liked about this game was that they were like, we're not going to go too far away from what you expect. We're just going to give you way more than you bargained for. And I think that that's a really great way to kind of set the stage uh, for Symphony of the Night. Absolutely. Now, this game comes out in October of 1997. I got it for, you know, around my birthday. It comes out, I think, October 2nd, which is our dad's birthday. It came out earlier that year, March March 20th, I think, 1997 in Japan. 
what were your first kind of takeaways as you played it? Do you remember? Because I do remember those early moments of playing it and never having played anything like it before. Yeah. And immediately being enamored by it. But what do you remember about those early times? You're basically playing the end of Rondo of Blood. We don't really know that at the time. Right. We didn't know that. So for people that don't know or aren't familiar, the end of, or the beginning of Symphony of the Night is literally you replaying the end of Rondo of Blood. That's what it is. Yeah. So it's the end of the original, or not the original Castlevania, but the game to which Symphony of the Night is a sequel. And I was enamored with how easily you beat that first boss and how all of your weapons are taken away and you're immediately weakened. It's in a really extraordinary moment in the game. And I'm curious what your first kind of instinct about the game was when you played it. Cause I remember even as an eighth grader being like, this game is something special, special. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing I thought was because we didn't know about Rondo of blood back then was that it was like, wow, they're taking the first Castlevania and stepping it up with these modern sprite graphics and just taking it to the next level visually with the, with the aesthetics and the animation. And I remember actually thinking that they were sort of redoing the boss fight the end boss fight with dracula from castlevania one that's what i thought it was because dracula in castlevania one you beat him when he's all robed and then he turns into a and monster. then he turns into the beast yeah. right the, it's i was like wow they're just kind of like doing a new version a new modern version of that this is kind of neat you know not real again not realizing it was rondo of blood and i remember actually thinking because we were so struck because I wasn't really into the 3D polygon stuff. And I think I was kind of secretly, not so secretly, a little heartbroken that it seemed like home games or video games were going that way. And it was such a joy to see this game and so refreshing and so unexpected. But also, I remember it kind of seeming like a supercharged 16-bit game. Like, it almost seemed like a, a supercharged Super Nintendo game. It almost has like a Mode 7-y feel to it. If you think of the save screen when Alucard's saving and the you know it's like the 3D sort of the 2.5D casket spinning around it almost seemed like a mode 7 game on cartridge. So I remember kind of physically thinking that like that wow this is kind of like a Super Nintendo game kind of just got to boost turbo boost it to the next level a little bit. And I just remember literally being struck by how wonderful the animation was and how fluid the gameplay was. You know it was just it's so saddest. There's so we'll get much further into it as we discuss it, but there's so many things that are feel satisfying about it. Everything feels right. The controls are just very precise. It's very fun. You know, I love little things, Kyle, like when you defeat an enemy and it sort of has that little beat of time where it's kind of dying and you could walk through it before the sprite disappears. You know, there's like a death animation, but once you defeat that enemy, it's still on screen. You could actually walk through it without getting hit. Very satisfying. And, you know, just everything about it seemed very thoughtful and very fun. And I think a big part of it was that contrast between a lot of the games we were playing on the PlayStation. I wasn't really familiar with the Saturn at that point, but most of the stuff on the PlayStation was not of this same you know, sort of specific cut. For me, that was the initial takeaway 
from the game. And just how and just how obviously how immersive it was. It seemed like I had read Carl, I don't know how much you know about this, but I had read that this team of people as they were developing the game originally supposedly originally you could speak to this they were um, developing this game for the 32X. That's as far as I understand it too. They right. And yes, that, that was kind of the original idea was to make this game for that. For the 32X. And I think what had happened was they were seeing what I had read anecdotally. I don't know if this is true or not. They had seen the older Castlevania games kind of sitting in bargain bins and were, you know, sort of had the thought of, well, this is a franchise that we believe in. We just think it needs new legs. How can we give this more depth? How can we elongate it? I think essentially, they, I think what they were saying was was that a lot of the Castlevania games were just too short and not immersive enough. So how can we stretch this out and make it a more immersive experience? They were taking Zelda. Supposedly, they were looking at Zelda and they were looking at Simon's Quest, which was, you know, I would argue is the original Metroidvania game in a way. And they were looking at those two things and saying, how can we take Simon's Quest and kind of bring it to the next level? You know, I don't know how, how much of that is anecdote now in retrospect and how, or how much of it is true, but that's what I read. And I knew you could speak more to that as well. So now what were your initial, you had bought it early on. Yep. I bought it. Yeah. I don't remember seeing it in the magazine. So that's, I wasn't into video game magazines at all at that point, but I would love to see this issue. I'm going to look this up. Yeah. I have every issue of PlayStation magazine, I think from 97, probably to 2001 or 2002. That's awesome. And you know, the original PlayStation magazine, I think was August or September of 97. It was Final Fantasy VII. So, yeah, that makes sense. That lines up. And my friend Steven had it. And I remember taking the card out of it to, you know, send in the money to get my own subscription. Right. And ironically, I never I paid twelve dollars for my first year of PSM and never paid again. And they just kept sending it to me. So there was obviously some sort of glitch in there. I paid twelve dollars <laughs> for PSM, which I received, you know, at least 60 issues of. That's amazing. But first of all, what I remember about it is that the cover was terrible. The cover art is terrible for it, but I didn't care. And I'm sure that was unattractive. The game was not a critical or it was a critical hit, but it wasn't a commercial hit at all when it came out. No. It didn't sell very well. That's why I don't think we ever got really a sequel. We got Castlevania Chronicles and stuff on PS1 later on, but we never got a game like this until Circle of the Moon came to GBA as a launch game on GBA in the summer of 2001. So there was about a four-year gap when we didn't get another Castlevania game of this kind, and then we started getting a lot of them, which I still I wish they still did. There was a really a golden era of Castlevania, Metroidvania-style Castlevania games from 2001 to 2008, the likes of which we'll probably never experience again. We were really getting them like Madden games, and it was... Really, really awesome. But, you know, I remember putting it into the PS1 and being a little, again, initially a little confused. We have that 3D intro that's a little crude that leads into a much cleaner looking, very much more familiar game. And what it immediately captured for me, you know, and I've talked about this, my love affair of Castlevania and why I love it so much. You know, if I love Mega Man, it's because I love the campy designs and I love the gameplay and the aesthetic, I think, is really great, colorful and bouncy, and it's really beautiful. Castlevania, I always loved because I felt like it had a lot of intrinsic storytelling capabilities without ever really saying anything. And Symphony of the Night was able to take that to an nth degree where Simon's Quest, I think, was the, the Castlevania game, Castlevania 2, that was able to do it before. And it's so obvious, the inspiration from Simon's Quest to this. Although, I love that Iga admits that because Simon's Quest is like the bastard child of Castlevania games. A lot of people hate that game. Still, to this day. Yeah. And I never understood why anyone would hate it. I understand that it, we've talked about it in the past, and we'll do an episode about the NES Castlevanias, I'm sure, one day, but it's very obtuse and very strange, but it was very much ahead of its time with its experience system, with its inventory, with optional places to go, optional items. You didn't have to get everything to beat the game. You know, you can kind of do things in certain orders, which was really quite revolutionary at the time, and they've took that in the Symphony of the Night and made something that, even though it is very similar to Super Metroid, I will say this, and I will say this definitively, it is 
way better than Super Metroid. I hate when people compare these games and act like Super Metroid has anything on Castlevania Symphony of the Night. <laughs> definitely doesn't. No offense. It definitely doesn't. It is a much better game than Super Metroid. And I've always found Super Metroid to be incredibly overrated. I would agree with that. But this game immediately captured that storytelling, that storytelling that didn't need any narrative, that it didn't need any, you know, talking or characters or whatever, but then it gave it to you. And so it immediately gives it to you actually with Richter, you know, again, a Belmont, you know, the Belmonts being the protagonist of most Castlevania games, we had Simon and Trevor, etc. We had no idea what the fuck Richter Belmont was in 1997 in the United States. We had no idea who that was. Now we found out later that he's in Rondo of Blood, that he's kind of the protagonist in that. He's going to be in Smash Brothers on Switch, as we saw, which is pretty yes. cool. But we never really played Rondo of Blood and never made the connection. And I never, I literally never made the connections until well after I was out of college that this was a sequel to a, any sort of game at all. Because Castlevania yeah. games kind of link to each other. Simon's Quest, for instance, is a direct, you know, sequel to the original Castlevania. Castlevania 3 is a prequel to the original Castlevania. So they do often connect with each other. There is a Castlevania timeline that I think stretches from like the 10 hundreds all the way to the 2100s, depending on the Castlevania game you're playing. I think Order of Ecclesia or one of those games takes place in the future, actually, which is pretty cool. But this game takes place in the late 1790s. It is a direct sequel to Rondo of Blood. And you immediately get this feeling that there's more than meets the eye to this game. Now we find out well into the game that there definitely is more than meets the eye with this game. And one of the most extraordinary moments in video game history in my, you know, in my interpretation, and we'll get into that. And we're specifically talking about the inverted castle. You know, I was taken with it because I was expecting, I guess, after the faux last boss fight, I was like, is it going to end the stage going to end? And now we're going to go to the next stage. Yeah. You know, that's kind of always how it, it happened. If you think about the original Castlevania, it actually starts in that same corridor that you kind of find yourself in, in the original Castlevania. And you see that corridor again in Castlevania three, which is midway through the game because Castlevania three starts outside of the castle, which is one of the things I always loved about it. And so I just expected to be like, okay, the hearts are going to go away. The score is going to round up. You can almost hear that noise, you know, your health going down. It makes it kind of noise and then like goes and then it's the map doesn't happen in symphony of the night it just doesn't stop and you move right you you have you're overpowered alucard is overpowered then you all your shit gets taken away you're back at level one with nothing equipped and off to the races you go and yeah. it's it's extraordinarily immersive and it's extraordinarily special in the way it portrays itself and i love that alucard is the protagonist so to catch everyone up a little bit about alucard and who he is First of all, Alucard is Dracula spelled backwards. Alucard is Dracula's son with a human woman, and so he's a half vampire, and he's introduced in Castlevania 3. Now, Koji Igarashi, Iga, has often said that Castlevania 3 is his favorite Castlevania game, and he has very good taste because it is a phenomenal, absolutely stellar Castlevania game. game. Just an absolutely special, one of the NES's very best games. And what basically happens is that Rondo of Blood, I think, takes place in 1792, and Richter beats Dracula, but then disappears. He never comes out of the castle. And Maria, this woman, goes into the castle to look for him at some point. She also gets caught up in there at some point. And then Alucard, five years later in 1797, goes to the castle because he's kind of beckoned to it. The castle reappears. As you guys know in Castlevania, Castlevania is the name of the castle, basically. And Castlevania reappears and disappears every hundred years or so. And it comes back five years after Dracula's killed. So something's wrong. Yeah, something's off. And Alucard being related and also being undead goes into the castle to investigate, finds Richter, you know, eventually finds Maria many times and kind of gets to the bottom of what's going on in there. So it's cool that you start the game playing as Richter 
have that boss fight, it kind of catches you up with what's going on without really letting you know, and then you fight as Alucard. Alucard has that awesome running design when he's running through the woods to get into the castle before the drawbridge closes. And he jumps. And he jumps and he gets into the castle. It's super cool, really, really stylish for 1997 and today, I think. And that's basically setting the stage. I'm not entirely sure the story is that important to the game as much as the characters are important, whether it's the Master Librarian, whether it's Maria, whether it's, you know, Shaft and death and all that kind of stuff so death right that's kind of like where i became really enamored with it and then you realize that you're basically going through this castle and if you hit the select button you see this map that in the beginning is just empty it's just an empty map and you kind of put together this idea that wow you have a lot more to go and it's really quite extraordinary in that regard so i want to start by talking about the art and the animation before we go any further because this is where I really want your input, Dagan. Because the art lead, Ayami Kojima, who... And I know that this isn't necessarily relevant today, but this is a woman. And this is one of the things that I'm really quite fascinated by. Because game development in the 80s and 90s wasn't full of women. There were certainly women making games. Whether it was Amy Hennig or whoever. But it's not common to have an art lead, an art director on a major AAA video game at the time being a woman. And Ayami Kojima... Worked, started her first Castlevania game was Symphony of the Night. She worked all the way through actually Harmony of Despair, which is kind of the bastard Castlevania game that took play, that came out in 2010, the, the online only game. Never played that one. No, no one did because it was stupid. <laughs> and she does some other stuff, and I think she actually is somewhat involved with some art design in Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, which is kind of the spiritual successor to Symphony of the Night that comes out next year that Koji Igarashi and Inni creates over in Japan are creating. But I'm wondering. What is it about the aesthetic that's so beautiful? Because we talked about the polygonal nature of a lot of games at the time, how they don't hold up. Textures are terrible. It's all blocky. It looks like shit. I mean, I played last summer Final Fantasy VII from beginning to end for the first time in a long time. Platinum did on PS4. Fantastic game. Looks like absolute trash. Yeah. Looks absolutely fucking awful. Doesn't hold up. This game really, honest to Christ, looks amazing still. And I'm curious if you can go a little deeper into why that might be, whether it's the enemy designs or the parallax scrolling and the color palette. I also think the Castlevania diversity, the different regions of the castle, whether it's the chapel or the laboratory or whatever the case might be, has a lot of diversity to it that we knew well in Castlevania, but seamlessly stitches it together in a way we've never seen before. So it's like once you got through the intro stage in the original Castlevania, you never saw it again, but you could always go back to it again if you want in this game, whether you need to go collect something or just want to see it for yourself. So what is it about the art that really makes it stand out? You, you, what's so striking about this game, Kyle, especially if you consider it in the context of when it was released, was how much confidence Konami had in, in this thing because it seemed like, as we talked about, it seemed like video games were going in the opposite direction. So to put this much work and love into something that, and just kind of inherently feel like they knew that it was going to succeed eventually. And you had spoken to it a little bit earlier too. This is the first game I remember hearing about where the critical reception to the game was what really turned people onto it because without that positive critical reception from the publications and so forth, people might've just ignored it, you know, which they initially did. Apparently, you know, I don't remember exactly how it played out. I read about it, but you know, the critical reception to this game was what you think it would be. People were like, what, this is an amazing game. And then people were like, oh, this is an amazing game. I'm going to go check it out. But what's really striking about it is that Konami had the faith to do it and put the work that they put into it in an era where it seemed like games weren't really going in this direction. And I think also, I love how you set it up, 
the thing about 2D sprite graphics or just 2D animation in general is what makes it so good is the fact that it's not similar to art that's 3D in nature, polygonal art, because what what it is, it's all drawn up to the amount of quality that you're willing to put into it and your ability and maybe your color capabilities. That's it. Everything else hinges on just the talent and the amount of blood, sweat, and tears that you put into it, both for the art and the animation. And they just pulled out all the stops with this game. And I think we're talking about it in the context of what holds up and what doesn't hold up. But what makes this game hold up so well is that it's just the fact, the simple fact of, you know, the nature of 2D graphics that really good 2D graphics just hold up because it is what it is. It's not really reliant on the technology. It's just reliant on the art form, at least, you know, to a large degree. And what was so striking about this game, I think, all video games, but also just all good Castlevania games, is that they seemed very confident. There's a confidence in this game you could feel inherently in the creation of it. They were just confident in what it was, which was like this in this world, in this universe, it's beautifully depicted atmosphere. It's 100% realized it is what it is. You know what I mean? They had confidence in creating a world and making it immersive. And they, you know, I think good art, especially good video game art, you could see that the creator believes in it. You know, the world just feels cohesive. It feels right. Everything feels like it belongs. And I think there's also sort of a little bit of a nuance that's hard to explain, that there's sort of an elegance to the art. You know, I think it all comes through the character of Alucard, who's sort of a nobleman. He, you know, he's of noble descent. He's of this noble bloodline, the way he carries himself, his attire, you know, the weapons he fights with. There's that sort of that element of, you know, sort of, I guess that harkens back to Dracula too, of that nobility. You know, there's a creepiness, there's an evil, but also there's a nobility. And I think that's depicted in the atmosphere too, the surroundings, you know, the castles, the ornate architecture, sort of the, you know, the chandeliers and the candelabras and all, you know, the library and how, you know, grandiose everything is. And I think that comes across in the graphics and in the environments and in the gameplay even. And I think also what's really so amazing about this game is there's so it's so huge as we talked about and there's so many different environments you know from the library to the basement to the chapel you know you have this all this beautiful and we'll get into this too this is another point I, I don't want to forget to mention all that sort of gothic catholic imagery and you have to remember all the previous castlevania games or mo- the ones that we knew anyway were on nintendo where in North America, a lot of that religious imagery was censored. And now you had it on Sony, now it's on PlayStation, you could have all that in the game. You could have the crucifixes, you could have the stained glass windows, you could have the altar and the priests and the chapel bells and all this kind of stuff. That really lends a lot to the atmosphere of the game. And what it, you know, this sort of classic battle of good versus evil in a realistic way. You know, where you have this demonic entity and and then the other side, the good side. How does that speak to you? Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. That, yeah. Because what's so funny, Dagan, to me is that Castlevania from the very beginning was so clearly religious and was allowed to have that religious aspect in Japan, but was not allowed to have that here. 
And I often look at Castlevania 2 and Castlevania 3 specifically with imagery and just instances where I'm like, that's clearly religious and they just, they somehow translate it in such a way that it doesn't come off that way or they change a little bit of the sprite work. For instance, in Castlevania 2, you go to churches to heal yourself, but they don't make it, and you're talking to priests, by the way, and they're clearly priests in robes holding Bibles walking around and you call, and you talk to them but they don't really come off that way. And in Castlevania 3, as people might remember, Trevor, you're introduced to Trevor praying and he gets up and then starts and goes through the first stage, but they don't ever make it seem like that's what he's doing in the first one. So there was always this this religious aspect to it that was understated, even though yeah. it was always there. It was always underneath the surface that the Japanese audience got a lot more. Like, I always really loved that intro with Trevor in Castlevania 3 with him praying because it's like, it's, it's awesome great. music and his head is just down or whatever. And then he gets up and he like flips his cape over and you see his sprite. And then you just start walking to the right, basically. It's very, very cool. And so I agree with you. The religious nature of it and the good versus evil kind of nature to it, the supernatural nature to it, is very similar to the reasons why I love movies like The Exorcist or something. Because there is something really scary about religion and religion gone amok where someone has bastardized a communique with God or has some sort of godlike powers but uses it for nefarious purposes. And that's basically what Dracula does because we're not really – ever sure what Dracula is trying to do. I don't think we ever really understand why he's doing what he does, but it's his aura that attracts good people to negate the negativity, whether it's Maria, which I remember now is actually a Belmont cousin, I think, looking for Richter, who's her cousin, and Richter attracted to the castle in Rondo of Blood for that same evil resonance, and then Alcard, who's related to Dracula, going there for the very same reason, agnostic or atheist, I assume, since he has that evil blood coursing through him, but has managed to kind of temper it, which is really cool. But I love that you brought up the chapel specifically because that's probably my favorite part of the castle because the music changes very suddenly. The music's different in every section of the castle, but it has a totally different feel, some really scary looking enemies, the stained glass windows, and it's super bright compared to the rest of the game. And there's that one creepy fucking part. I know what you're going to say. Where you sit down at the confessional. Yes. And there's a priest on the other side. And sometimes he like kills you or like does different things to you. I don't know exactly how and the you... music changes yeah. when you go in there. It's just a little side thing. Like, I, knew, I knew you were going to bring that up because it is creepy. It's creepy, man. Play that game at night at like one in the morning yeah. by yourself with the lights off. <laughs> Go in there. It's still creepy. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. And that's, you know, I did a video on IGN because that's, you know, kind of what I was talking about when I was back at IGN. I did this video that there's something truly horrible and horrorful, I should say, about the gothic nature of the game and the series and how it's the quintessential Halloween series and the quintessential October game because... It really does have this foreboding, fear-like element to it that you couldn't believe could be portrayed in 2D sprite graphics, but is, in fact, way more atmospheric and way more heady in that way than lots of beautiful $100 million games that are made today that are going for the same effect. It's really, truly special in that regard. It's a great point. And, you know, Dave, I got to give a shout-out, though. You know, it's not a name that comes up very often because we talk about Koji Igarashi a lot with, you know, kind of the father of Metroidvania, the father of Castlevania games of this ilk. And he was the assistant director on Symphony of the Night. He wasn't really responsible for this game the way right. people, I think, give him credit for. He He's, was promoted somewhere along yeah, the way, Yeah, I think right? halfway through he became the director. I think other people kind of had moved on. And starting with Circle of the Moon, again, the Game Boy Advance Metroidvania launch game and going all the way up to the DS games that, you know, occurred in the mid to late aughts, he was responsible for them. But Symphony of the Night was really the brainchild of other people. And I think we'd be loath not to give uh, credit to a guy named... Toru Hagihara, who was the game's director, a longtime Konami employee. He was a programmer. He was a producer. He was a supervisor. What's interesting about him is that not only did he direct Rondo of Blood, but 
fast forward almost a decade from when Symphony of the Night came out in 2007 and his credits stop appearing and I was doing a little bit of research about him because, you know, Moby Games and all these websites have like really comprehensive credits lists where you can see what they were doing and and everything. And his name stops appearing after 2007. And I found reference to, and I didn't find this anywhere else, so I could be wrong, but I found reference to a Toru Hagihara that works in the Japanese banking sector. Hmm. And I don't know if it's the same guy. This could be a name like John Smith in Japanese for all I know. I don't think it is. But I think that unlike Koji Igarashi and some of the other guys that are kind of known for Castlevania, for design, for art, for music, whatever, his specialty was programming and computer science. And so that would make sense for me that Mr. Hagihara, Hagihara-san, went on to the banking sector because his skill probably translates actually quite literally to almost anything else. And maybe he wanted to go make money. So I'm pretty sure he's been out of games for like 10 plus years. And wow. it would be really fun and really amazing to kind of sit down and speak with him about if that is indeed the right man. And I assume, again, it is. It would be interesting to speak about him. And he, I think, was the one that spoke in early interviews about kind of how this game is also influenced by The Legend of Zelda, the original Legend of Zelda, and probably even A Link to the Past. Because I think, Dagan, that one of the things that's lost in the Metroidvania provenance, which begins really quite literally with the NES Metroidvania, which is a really obtuse game, I think, by any standard. But a great game nonetheless. That he was the one that kind of pointed to say like, well, this also is influenced by this other series that doesn't really get a lot of credit for being an influence. We often look at Super Metroid as being, and Simon's Quest as being these major influences. Yeah. But Legend of Zelda's non-linearity, optional items and weapons, and kind of non-order, especially linked to the past in the Dark World where you can go in any order you want really. That's a major influence too. And I think that he was the one that drew it in. So I, I would be loath as we talk about Symphony of the Night and how important it is to not mention his name, even though it's not a name that you hear very much. He's the director of the game, you know, and he was the director of Rondo of Blood and he worked on other Castlevania games and seems to be one of the guys that maybe doesn't really get much credit. And I think a lot of the reason why that is, is because he's just not there anymore to defend himself or to be a Konami you know, or to make other games and kind of yeah. defend his legacy. He just yeah. seems to have moved on. He's not in that, yeah, he's not in that sphere anymore. But the other thing that I want to bring up, well, there's a lot of other things I want to bring up, but I think the next appropriate thing to bring up, Dagan, is Please. actually the music. Oh, yes. Because we'd be really quite foolish to not talk about the soundtrack to the game, which is extraordinary. Although I will say this, and this might be controversial, the soundtrack in Symphony of the Night is not as good as the previous Castlevania games. It's not. It has a totally different instrumental element to it it's a lot of rock and a lot of like very diverse elements to it there's some great tracks and some not great tracks but the composer of the game is Michiru Yamani who's another female and this is what I love about this and again I don't mean to keep pointing out male and female but at the time this is a pretty relevant thing that your art director and your composer are both women on this major smash it game in a very male dominated industry and her first game was in 1988 she's still working today Bloodlines was her first Castlevania game, which was, of course, a Genesis exclusive game. And you'll be pleased to know that she is the composer of Bloodstained. Oh. Ritual of the Night. I didn't know that. And it was at least doing some tracks for Koji Igarashi over there as well. So I think that that's pretty exciting stuff. That's notable. Yeah. I mean, that's notable. And you know what? The art director um, and head lead character designer, Ayami, right? Yeah, Ayami, Ayami Kojima. Kojima. This yeah. was her Unrelated, first... Unrelated, by the way, to Hideo Kojima. Oh, unrelated. Yes. This was her first game in that role as well, right? Yes. So that is notable. And, you know, it's it said that she was sort of um, largely responsible for Alucard's design in this game. And she sort of introduced that 
theme of that beautiful boy. I think it's pronounced Bishonin in Japan, which is sort of like a style of art that stresses a very elegant, you know, almost girlishly beautiful men. You know, from the clothing to their hair, that whole that whole look, that whole aesthetic. I think she was largely responsible for that. So she has a, yeah, she has a big part to play in this too. Now, I want to jump back into the questions, comments, and concerns from the audience, Dig, because I think that this will give us a nice way to structure a future conversation about Symphony of the Night as we move forward now that we've kind of prefaced it. Okay. And I want to start with a question or a comment from Carlos Streif who wrote in and said, this is easily one of my favorite games of all time, and I'm very excited to replay it alongside Rondo of Blood on the PS4, hopefully with a decent trophy list. As far as I understand, the trophies aren't live by the time that we're recording this, although they will be, I think, by the time this goes live, but... As far as I understand, it will have a platinum trophy and it will be, according to Kami, incredibly hard to get. So I want to see what that all means. I'm sure it's associated with Rondo of Blood. Would you guys consider Symphony of the Night a perfect game in terms of design, progression levels, and all of that? I think it does some very smart and interesting things, like how Alucard loses all of his gear in the beginning of the game, a moment that reminds me of Mega Man X, in the sense that you see that you'll be that powerful later on in the game, and how mind-blowing it is when you realize everything in the castle was designed to work upside down. That's now, this... This is where it gets fucking nuts in terms of design. And I, I mean pure design. Because for people that have not played the game before, what you have to understand is that there comes a point about, it's not even halfway through the game, it's about a third of the way through the game, where you fight Richter, or what is a possessed version of Richter Belmont. And if you have a certain item, these glasses equipped, there's actually something above him that you attack instead of attacking him. And if you do that, you continue to play the game. If you don't, you get what is the bad ending. And a lot of people, if you read about it, stopped playing the game at that point. They thought that was the end That's of the game. That's it. But it's not the end of the game. And what's extraordinary and possibly one of the most extraordinary things in any video game from a design, from a specifically design perspective is that they turn the entire Castlevania castle upside down and it works. It still works. And when you go through it the first time and you look at all the spires and the ceilings and everything, you see it. But you, the first time you play it, I remember being so mind-blown when that happened. I'm like, what? I know. Because it's not impressive necessarily in the main that, okay, you go through the castle again and it's upside down and they did some edits. No, it's literally the castle flipped on flipped. its it flipped upside down and it works. It totally fucking works. And that is one of the most incredible things that a video game's ever done in my entire experience of 30 years playing video games. And I'm curious what you think about that inverted castle and kind of how that flipped it on its head because I love again a that people just didn't know that it existed and b that they had to go through every pixel every square inch of that game and made sure it worked in both inverted and normal versions that's it's unbelievable absolutely unnecessarily complicated it's it actually might have been easier for them to make a entirely second separate castle than to actually do that absolutely. that's what's extraordinary about that it might have they might have been able to take an entire different map and make it and it have been easier than I'm designing that castle to work upside down. Oh, I think it would have. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. It's impossible not to appreciate that level of thoughtfulness. This game would be in the lexicon of best games ever created without that, I would argue. It's like the world's biggest video game Easter egg. It's unbelievable that they would put that much work into something. And it's striking, as you said, when you come to that realization that, holy cow, this all works upside down, this was built that way, and then and now you're looking at it because you're remembering it not being inverted, and you're like, holy shit. And the other thing is, too, that's probably not spoken of enough, just the fact of inverting something and just how that lends itself, you know, like you think of the inverted crucifix, the inverted cross or whatever. That's 
awesome. Very I mean, it, it I never even thought of that. I never even thought of yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, oh, that I love just that, goes hand in hand with everything else about this game that makes it such a thoughtful piece of art. You know, again, like our video games art, the most aggravating non-argument ever, you know, in the history of arguments. Of course, video games are art. But, I mean, this just drives the point home. I mean, this game was just a beast of a creation. The fact that we're still appreciating it. First of all, I'm so excited that people get to play Rondo of Blood. Because nobody played that game. And it's supposed to be wonderful. Kyle, do you know how much time passed between Rondo of Blood and Symphony? Because Maria, if I'm not mistaken, Maria's playable in Rondo of Blood. But she's a little girl in it. And now I think in Symphony, she's supposed to be 17. Yeah, as I said earlier, I think it's 1792, Rondo, 1797. Oh, so Symphony, it's like five, so five years, years. Pass? Okay. She goes okay. into the castle before Alucard gets there. I don't know how so- much sooner, but yeah, she's probably like a preteen to maybe 13 or whatever. Right, right, right. And Something then, like that. Yeah. And to your point about Rondo of Blood, because I want to talk about that next, but Rondo of Blood was never playable in the West outside of you know, this obscure system that no one had until, and was it even released on TurboGrafx-16 in the West? So it was not playable at all until they released it on Virtual Console and they released it in Dracula X Chronicles on PSP, which is the first time I played it. That was in 2007. And that's when I actually bought my own PSP for the first time. But I want to talk about Rondo next. Corey Willard wrote in and said, hello, gentlemen. Castlevania Symphony of the Night is my favorite video game of all time and was one of the first games I got for my PlayStation in 1997. I'll never forget opening it at Christmas and being awestruck by the cover. I hadn't even asked for it or known about the game before getting it, so I don't know what compelled my parents to purchase it for me, but I'm glad they did because I fell in love with it. Lucky you. My 10-year-old brain had a difficult time comprehending the opening of the game being the ending of the previous game, which I had also never heard of. Since the boss fight is basically impossible to lose, it set my expectations that the game should be remarkably easy. I was wrong. That said, having played, having since played Rondo of Blood, I love that Symphony of the Night is a direct continuation of that story. What are your thoughts on how the story of Symphony of the Night continues that of Rondo of Blood? I must say, Dane, from my perspective, and I'm curious what you have to say about this, but it was irrelevant to me because I didn't know. I had no idea what the fuck was going on in that game until yeah. later on. And we should have known better because I was on the internet by this time in 1997, and you could have very easily researched it. People, obviously, if you go back and look, had known that this was Rondo of Blood from the very beginning because they were playing ROMs of it. Turbo gra- on Turbo Graphics emulators, but or PC engine emulators, I really should say. But it wasn't a relevant factor to me until that Dracula X Chronicles came to PSP, and you're able to kind of see how they connect to each other, specifically because in Dracula X Chronicles, you have to play Rondo of Blood to unlock Symphony of the Night. So it forces you to see at least a little bit of the game. You unlock it pretty early, but you have to at least play some of the game. So it gives it context, and dare I even say texture, that didn't exist there before that I don't think is necessary, but it's simply only additive and only makes the game that much cooler because while Castlevania games have connected to each other for a long time, like I said, Castlevania 1, 2, and 3 all connect to each other in some intimate way, it's not necessarily common to put the context into the game and beat you over the head with it. This is literally the end of the last game. We had no idea. We had no No. idea. And I don't remember anyone ever saying that until, you know, I was in college or even after that before I ever realized that. So Me too. You know? Yeah. Even beyond that for myself. So I'm not sure that the Rondo of Blood connection is super relevant but it doesn't detract from it no it makes it even more crazy that they were that konami was backing this game i mean i know turbo graphics and the you know the pc engine was much bigger in japan than it ever was in, in north america but the fact that they you know purposely tied this context and this continuity between this game that nobody knew in north america just makes it even more special they were really backing this game and they they really believed in what they had that extra point just speaks to it all the more 
you know, that we had no idea what this was. You know, again, I thought it was a remake of Castlevania. <laughs> That's what I thought it was. <laughs> like, what? Okay, but Simon's wearing blue now. All right, I'll, I'll go with it. Like, you know, I didn't know. I didn't, I, I don't think I even knew who Richter was. No, we had no point. idea who Richter we was. We had no, no idea. So, I mean, and Richter to me, again, was only just this Belmont that was somehow caught in this castle. I had right. no idea that there was any context to why. We got a continuity, right? We knew who was a Belmont, right? So that, that was the other, the other notable thing about the game was we saw... They had those threads and sort of those through lines that, you know, sort of weaved one Castlevania to the other all the way to Symphony of the Night. We got that, but we didn't get, as you said, we didn't get the full context. That really, it's very interesting. This it, game is very interesting. It is interesting just because when you think about the creepiness of it all and the way it all connects to each other, you know, I've talked about it in the past and we'll get really into it when we do a proper NES Castlevania episode, which I promise you guys will do. I love Castlevania 2 so much because it's so fucked up. You know, like when you really think about how fucked up it is, I think it was just lost in translation, literally, but also because of the NES's limitations in terms of storytelling and graphical aesthetic, where Simon, in the original Castlevania, Simon Belmont, the original Castlevania protagonist, kills Dracula, but doesn't do it right in in some way and has to go, they separate his body to make sure that he's not revived. And then he has to go around the countryside and collect all the body parts, revive them and kill him again. <laughs> it's really kind of fucked up. It is. And you do it in the old, I love the end of Castlevania too, man. I remember you used to just put the password in and we would just play through it sometimes with the flame whip and just going through that creepy castle, the ruins of the castle, the, all the body parts come out and congeal together. Yeah. And, then, and then Dracula appears again. I'm like, this is scary shit. There's and no the, enemies. It's just cre- right. creepy music. You climb down. Yeah, it's like the last stage or whatever. Of the, like you're in these ruins, and and then Castlevania three gives you context into Simon's upbringing and where this kind of fight began. Although again, with future Castlevania games, you realize it even goes further back than that. So it is cool that even though story isn't really that important in Castlevania, as much as the aesthetic and as much as what you read into it, that there is a timeline that exists, and that Rondo and Symphony exist in important parts of this timeline. And that it's just as creepy as that Castlevania 1 to 2 connection because, like I said, the castle's supposed to appear every century, but the castle just comes back randomly and Richter never comes out of it. It almost gives you goosebumps because it's like, I would never want them to touch this game and remake it ever. No. Ever. No. Ever, ever, ever. But there's something extraordinarily tantalizing about being able to tell that story right about how fucking weird it is. Where's Richter? And then this little girl goes in after him. And then Alucard goes in after him. There's a lot there. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's very cool. It it is. It's so so neat. Now, the previous question from Corey was talking about how difficult it was. I'm more in line, actually, with what Zach Brown has to say, and I'm interested in what you think of this too, Dagan, because I actually think that while Symphony of the Night is pretty much perfect, if there's one problem with it, it's that it's too easy. And here's what Zach Brown says. Just when I thought it was early Christmas with the announcement of Castlevania Requiem, just days later, you announced that you and Dagan will be covering it on Knockback. You're better than ever, gentlemen. And while Symphony of the Night sits comfortably in my top five all time, there's one element that I can't ignore, which has garnered criticism over the last 20 years. It's challenge, or lack thereof. I remain a lover of the NES renditions. I remember playing the original Castlevania first in elementary school, yet never becoming savvy enough with my jumps in holy water until revisiting it in college to finally beat it. I probably played through Castlevania 3 once every couple of years, and there are still parts that can give me problems. Castlevania 3 is incredibly hard. It's a really hard game. It definitely is. However, as gorgeous, engaging, and evolutionary as Symphony of the Night is, it it never really was too tough to power through the bosses and final endgame. In recent years, I've tried to adjust my play style to make the game tougher. 
no armor, no sub weapons, etc. But sometimes that becomes disappointing because I'm giving up such fun, such fun elements. What are your thoughts on the drop in difficulty that came with this new chapter in the franchise's life? A big deal or not so much? Would you ever do anything to make the game more challenging for yourself to give it the true throwback to the Castlevania challenge of old? Thank you as always for the fantastic work. I love this because I'm more in line with this. I think that this is the first Castlevania game that we ever played that let you kind of control how powerful you were going to be because there's a leveling and experience system that increases your statistics. By the way, something I didn't know until I was researching this episode was that depending on the nature that Rick of Richter beating the boss in the beginning, depending on how that goes down, your statistics are boosted or not, which yes. I didn't know because I never really cared. I was just like, oh, whatever. I'm just like trying to get through this yeah, section. Exactly. But yeah. if you beat it without getting hit, if you beat it without dying, all those kinds of stuff, you get ma massive boosts to your stats, which I didn't know. And you're obviously given a litany of equipment. And I remember actually, and this is why I wanted to bring this question up to you, Dagan, because you were saying how you were playing it recently. You were playing it with your son who's in second grade, who's you know pretty savvy with video games. You can play yeah, Mega Man, for he's instance. Good. But that you had to kind of introduce to him for the first time like an inventory system, which is something that you know Castlevania 2 had, but not quite to this extent. And it actually had it to more of a great extent than we kind of give it credit for. But you're equipping left and right-handed weapons. You're equipping accessories. You're equipping armor and all this kind of stuff. You're gathering gold. There's ways to purchase items. And so you're able to control in a way that the other Castlevania games you couldn't control. In fact, in engineered in Castlevania 1 and 3 was that the further in the game you got, the more damage you took, even from the same enemy. So the game intrinsically got harder. Like, there was no way around it. Absolutely. If you guys recall, using Castlevania 1 as an example, which is six stages... In the first two stages, you would take two points of damage for every hit you took. And the three and four, you would get three points of damage. And in stages five and six, you get four points of damage, meaning you can only get, get hit, I think, four times. And even if you got hit by a Medusa head on Medusa's stage, which is stage two, and got hit with two hit points, if you got hit with that same Medusa head in Grim Reaper stage, which is stage five, that would count for twice as much. So built into the fucking cake was making the game harder. Not to mention that the game was just getting more chaotic as you got, got along. Symphony of the Night's different, so it becomes easier. How do you feel about that? And I'm curious how your son took to learning about that aspect of video games too, since it's such an important aspect of role playing generally. In video yeah, games. yeah, and great. And, and my son doesn't have a lot of specific experience yet with RPG elements. This was kind of his first time, and I think it threw him a little bit. And I think part of it was just going into the menu and switching things around. I think he was a little daunted by that because it's complex. You know, you have jewelry. You have to, as you said, you have to equip both hands. You have armor. You have all the different elements. You know, but it's funny because I have this qu question written for you. I said, ask Colin if he thinks the model of the game essentially getting easier as the game progresses is a good thing or a bad thing. Because as you power up, Alucard indeed overpowers the game largely. But I think there's a direct correlation between the difficulty and just the sheer size of the game. First of all, as we've discussed a couple of times and a couple of the listeners have brought up, it's very, very clever and very, very inventive to show early on how powerful your character is and then just take it all away. That's a wonderful touch. Not that other games didn't do it first, but this was one of the first ones. I like the way they show it too. That he Oh, like, it's wonderful. Yeah. You know, he's like, well, he just takes it all, you know, and he's just, you know, that's death that does that, right? Yeah. Didn't in the initial confrontation. But I think that it feels right to me. I think there's a couple of points about that. I think that, you know, as you said, the game, as the game goes on, and as you uncover more areas and um, uncover more abilities and uncover more weapons, Alucard does get more powerful, but the game is also getting, you know, the enemies are getting harder, the environments are getting more difficult. But I think for the sheer size of the game, I think that 
that was necessary because I think if it was Castlevania three difficult with the size of the game that Symphony of the Night gives you, it wouldn't be a good alchemy of elements. It w- it just wouldn't work correctly. It would and be I, way too annoying. It would be way, it would be way too off putting, you know. And I think the other important thing to note there is the fact that it's important to have those exploration elements and your abilities and your powering up allows your exploration abilities to also gain you know whether it's alucard you know shape-shifting into different creatures or gaining the double jump ability or just getting better weapons and better armor and stuff like that i think that it's necessary i think that it was necessary for this game i see what people are saying by that because you do inherently feel it. You're like, wow, this sword just destroys everything in one foul swoop. And it also is very striking because there's a lot of backtracking in the game. So you could, you're kind of measuring yourself against enemies that you saw three hours previously that were difficult. Now you're just flying through them. So that kind of adds insult to injury, you know, for lack of a better term. But I think for me personally, now what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think that we have to forgive it because I think that that's not necessarily terribly uncommon in similar games of its kind. I mean, we're in the middle of a Metroidvania renaissance right now, which is extraordinary. And we used to get a really good Metroidvania, like a really noteworthy Metroidvania game every year, maybe back in the day, you might get a game like shadow complex, which is a really great game, or you might get something like guacamelee, or you might get something, you know, of that nature of that ilk strider, the strider remake that came out in 2014. Right. That's right. Every so often, but we never got them at this level. Now these past few months, we've gotten dead cells and guacamelee two and chasm and hollow Knight, which I've been spending. I played hollow Knight for almost 50 hours now. I can't believe how fucking huge that game is. Is it big? It's not big map wise. It's just extraordinarily backtracking and heavy in terms of the enemies you're fighting and stuff. That's very, cool. very good game. That's cool. So you kind of want to feel more powerful. You need to put the carrot at the end of the stick. It certainly is an inverse from what we would expect with standard Castlevania and standard 2D side scrolling Castlevania. But I'm not necessarily sure that getting easier per se is not uncommon in simply role playing games. I think we can even qualify that beyond Metroidvanias and just say that in role playing games, you're typically getting more and more powerful. Now, bosses might be more difficult, but you're typically ripping through your fodder in the same way in Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy that you would. You're just getting new equipment and you're leveling up, so everyone's kind of a parody to you. There are certain role-playing games that scale depending on your on how strong you are, but I think that that's bad design, and I think a lot of people hate that shit. I think the Lunar games do that, which are great games, but you don't want enemies to scale to how strong you are because oh, then there's yes. no reason yeah, yeah, to yeah. be more powerful. Then there's actually every reason to just skip enemy encounters to keep yourself as weak as possible. So there's a design tightrope that needs to be walked with that. But I don't know that the game is necessarily about how hard it is. I think it's about the experience of exploring the castle and figuring it all out and getting maxing it out to whatever people have broken it to now, 214% or whatever it is. But, oh, wow. you know, because like, you can get outside of the castle. For people that don't know, the game counts your progress in percentage which is very common now and i was it's funny i was telling aaron about how this works because hollow knight has a trophy for getting 200 or 112 percent or whatever and she's like what does that mean and i was like well there's dlc and stuff that adds to it but it's tradition in metroidvania games to have percentages higher than 100 because that's an ode to symphony of the night which did it first because you thought you beat the game with 100 percent completion until you fight richter with the special glasses on and then you realize that you can actually get to 200 percent. you can actually get it even higher than that by breaking it so I just think that it's kind of baked into the cake in that way, that you have to kind of either ask yourself what you want. Do you want a gruelingly hard game? Like you said, do you want the last third of Castlevania three, which is extremely difficult? Do you want that for 20 hours or do you want something that's playable? 
the part of the game that really sticks out to me, or the parts of the game that really stay out to me in this regard, and because you were brought up backtracking, which is a great point. There's that long corridor in the middle of the castle where the eyeball is looking through at you through the window I as you go through. I love that. And you're fighting these really unique enemies, including one that can turn you into stone and stuff. And it's over this area that you need to get to to get to the end of the game. But you kind of go through this section and it's really hard, but you go through back and forth through it multiple times and realize that it's actually not that hard. Like it actually gets easier and easier. And the other part we already brought up is the cathedral, which when you first get there has extraordinarily difficult enemies. There's oh my those, God, so hard. There are those enemies that are basically just the weapons in the circle. Yes. And there's like the flying, like spear wielding enemies from Castlevania three in there. So I think that there's something rewarding about becoming powerful enough with your experience, finding the right gear. Maybe you go to the librarian and you buy good gear. Or you get some really rare drop from an enemy and then you go back through and, and you feel satisfied because you're like Alucard is demonstrably stronger. These enemies have stained static. And I think that that's kind of a cool part of the design. So yes, there's no doubt that Metroidvania Castlevania style games generally are easier than the 2d side scrolling. You'll see if you guys play Castlevania Requiem that Rondo of blood is way harder than symphony than I will ever be. But that's kind of the nature of those games. So I don't think, I think you have to be careful what you ask for, but on the other flip side of that, John Cesarelli wrote in, and Joshua McGee wrote a, a similar question, but we're going to stick with John Cesarelli's version of it. He says, when this game came out on Xbox 360 Arcade, a friend recommended it to me. It was the first game I ever beat in a single setting. I must have played this until 4 a.m. because I just couldn't put it down. It introduced me to the entire Metroidvania genre, even though I didn't play Super Metroid until many, many years later. Beating the game for the first time and realizing there was an entire new castle to play through was mind-blowing, and it's quite simply a marvel when it comes to design. What were your first experiences with the game but this is the part I really want to get into, especially transitioning from a level by level structure akin to Castlevania one, two and four. You're, you say two, but it should really be one, three and four. Actually, I, what I want to ask you about this and, and to include John's question, which I think is well put, is. Is there still a place for those kinds of Castlevania games? Because we don't get them anymore. And I'm wondering if by releasing Castlevania Requiem in a clever way, Konami is saying, like, we're going to give you both. And then we're going to look at the data. What people don't seem to think about, although I think they probably realize, is that publishers can see to a very granular level how you play their games. They have heat maps and things are constantly sent to their servers and they can tell how much time people spent with a game. You can look at the trophies to see that too, but they can literally see like what parts of the game were people stuck on, where do they stop playing, what do they play more and all that kind of stuff. And I wonder if this releasing this package is a way for them to test the waters to see like, should we go in this direction or should we go in this direction? And I, some point. and I think the obvious answer is that you should go in the Metroidvania direction, but I do think that there is still a place for those old style Castlevania games. And I wish that they would still make them. I don't think we've gotten one since Castlevania adventure rebirth came to WiiWare, And that was 10 years ago or so. Never played that. And that's, I think a remake of the game boy version. Of oh, is it really? Just a straight I don't up think remake? it's a sequel. I think it's a okay. remake. Okay. We had Castlevania Chronicles and a few others on PS1, but we really don't get those kinds of games anymore. So no. I'm wondering, do you think that they're still relevant? Because Mega Man 11 just came out, which is a Capcom there game, obviously. Yeah. I think that they're still relevant. And I would love to see them release 1, 2, and 3 as a trilogy on PlayStation 4. I would shit my pants. That's long overdue. That. Yeah. That's long overdue. Yeah, Kyle, I think there's absolutely a place for that. That's a classic model. Level and boss fight next level and boss fight that's a classic model and also i think that style of game lends itself better to difficult platforming not that you can't have difficult platforming in a metroidvania style game like symphony of the night and it does have some i could think of specific areas that were the platforming is pretty challenging but to have really difficult challenging platforming 
I think that sort of old school, you know, quote unquote, old school model of the level and then the boss fight at the end and the next level and it sort of cuts. I think that's nice for platforming and it's also nice for different styles of gameplay where the controls in the original Castlevania games are much more restrictive, right? You have the jump where you can't change direction in midair. You have the knockback. Right. Uh, see what I did there? By the way, the name of our show comes from knockback in terms of fighting games. I mean, that's kind of where we kind of, of settled course. on it. But yeah, knockback is a gaming term in case that's you guys didn't realize term. it. Yeah. That's a gaming term. So I think that's all relative. And I th- I love that you've brought up Mega Man 11 because that's that structure, that traditional Mega Man structure. As different as that game, you know, that game, you know, introduces some new things into the Mega Man formula, obviously. But it has still has that classic level and boss fight gameplay. And I think there's always room for that. There's room for everything, you know. Absolutely. I think it's worth testing the waters. Why not? I would love to see them go back and we'll get into this question deeper because someone asked this question specifically, but I would love to see them really do a, an 8-bit Castlevania game again. I, I think that I'd be holding my hand on my ass for a long time for that to happen. But That would be a lot of fun. That would be a lot of work, too, and I think that's why they <laughs> wouldn't want to do it. Jazzertine Tyag wrote in and said, hey, guys. Hey, guys. It's still vivid in my head. I'll wake up in the middle of the night, pretend that I'm still sleeping, and I'll watch my dad play it. My dad didn't beat the game, and I continued to save. It was hard, but in pure luck, I got a super OP sword, which is Chrysogrim. Or Chrysogrim, I think it's pronounced. It made the game super easy. You guys familiar with the sword? Anyway, what weapon did you use in the game? What weapon did you use to beat Dracula? It's been too long for me to answer this. You might be able to answer this more specifically. But one of the things that I wanted to bring up here, Dagan, and why I wanted to use this question was the ability to use different weaponry that is most appealing to you, including a bunch of one-off special weapons, special up and B, you know, or what we would call up and attack attacks. So like, you know, you have your cross and your holy water and stuff, but some yeah. new ones, inclu- including powder that you can put on the ground. That's a strange one. Yeah. And the, the gem that bounces around the room. I love that one. The Bible. The Bible is cool. Love that. It goes all around you. I love that. So I wanted to bring this up specifically because I don't remember what weapons I use. It's been too long, but, I like that there is a play style for everyone. Alucard can be much slower and much more plotting depending on how you want to equip it and what weapons you want to use with him. I think there are one and two hand weapons and stuff like that. So you can, you know, increase your defense or increase your attack. You can attack quicker. You can attack slower. And I really loved that part of the game specifically. Yeah, it gives so much more depth. You know, I I wish I remembered. I'm sorry. I don't remember the last sword that I ended up with, and Colin's right. You could you could equip a variety of two handed so you know two handed swords, one handed swords, and it, I always liked the quicker weapons, even if it took a little more hits. I liked the fact that Alucard could swing so quickly. I'd rather swing quickly and do less damage. That's always my yeah. Preference. It's more fun anyway. It's more satisfying too. I wish I remember the last sword, but I don't. I don't remember. There was one, the Masamune, Masamune the Masam, it had like a samurai. There was a few weapons that had like very Japanese esque samurai sword style names towards the end i'm not sure if that's where i ended up but i don't remember but i love the bible that's my special because it's one of those things that surrounds you and sort of forms a force field but it's also kind of sporadic you have to be strategic with it it doesn't leave you fully enveloped in like a force field it actually leaves you a little vulnerable which i kind of like but it's very strong and i think it was particularly strong against you know ghost you know apparition type spirit enemies specifically which is another nuance to the game that certain enemies responded differently to there was there's really a lot of nuance in this game you know and that was one of the things that that really spoke to me you know fire enemies would be weak to one sword and you know like the gem that you threw that bounces around would be very harmful as to a specific type of enemy i i love it there's so many layers to this game 
there isn't a lot of them unspoken, a lot of them unknown, even just yeah. the code really not even for you to know necessarily for clever people to kind of figure out, which I think is interesting and, and certainly a dual layered and many layered game in that regard. I want to ask how you feel about using these kinds of weapons specifically because we're so used to using whips in Castlevania games. And really, Castlevania kind of introduced me to the idea, I guess with Indiana Jones in a specific way, but the idea of using a whip at all as a weapon, you don't really think about it. I guess it was a weapon at some point for some people to use, but it's a different kind of feel because when we used Alucard in Castlevania 3, he used he shot fireballs out of his cape and turned into a bat, basically. That's right. And that was his introduction to us. But how, did it feel weird to you not using kind of the typical weapons? It made sense to me since he's not a Belmont. He's obviously right. something it's else. Right. It sort of kind of lent itself to that nobleman type. You know, he would fence or fight with a sword. But I want to ask you, Kyle, is, is this the first Castlevania game where you don't use a whip, including the Game Boy iterations and everything? I think so. I think it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it felt it felt like if you were going to do it, if you were going to change the whip, this was the perfect time. New character. You know, he's a vampire. He's sort of of, of that noble lineage. It seemed right. You know, it seems right for his character. I was always curious because Simon Belmont's art specifically, he always has a sword with him too, and he never, but he never uses it. And I always loved that. Like, he doesn't even bother to use it's it. neat. Because the Castlevania 1 and 2, 3's box art's not so good, but Castlevania 1 and 2's box art is like, just oh, absolutely it's so, it's so good. I want like a poster of Castlevania 1, you know, like, so actually, I might even want Castlevania 2 because that's the one where Jekyll's on the balcony, right? Yeah, I think yes, so. Yes, yeah. That yeah. one's even cooler. Tanner Brandt wrote into us and said, have at you. <laughs> man that symphony of the night voice acting is just how the best. did it we take have, this long we have not talked up. about the voice acting yet. now i'm going to disappoint some people because castlevania requiem is a direct port of the psp version which we've talked about before which is called dracula x chronicles and that has a new voice cast in it so and they oh. and, and i understand why they did that the original voice acting is so compressed it sounds like shit i know we're attached to it and we have this nostalgia for it, but it sounds awful yeah it doesn't in terms of up. it's like actual quality. production quality yeah because it's so compressed because PS1 disc couldn't fit it. So I'm a little disappointed in that. And I know a lot of people are a little disappointed in that. But man, the intro sequence between Richter and Dracula is one of the greatest scenes in gaming. And we've talked about this intro over and over again. But we did not talk about that correspondence between Dracula and Richter. And I love the, I don't know, the symbolism or the... Just the way Dracula comes off in that is not giving a fuck. He's drinking like a glass of wine and like sitting slouched in his throne. He throws the glass, you know, at Richter or whatever. It's like so cool. And the voice acting there while compressed and while not very well voice acted is iconic. Absolutely iconic. And if people don't know, they should just go watch the intro because absolutely, it's awesome. Absolutely. And the voices, the, vo- the performances are weird. But the voices themselves really work. I don't know who played Alucard in that, but his voice is wonderful. It fits the character so perfectly, even for that little sprite image of his face. You know, it just fits. Maria, too. You know, all the voices are good. The performances are are odd. But who knows what direction these people had. You know what I mean? I'd I'd love to be a fly on that wall, though. You know, but you like know, you one said, take. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't get any more one take than Mega Man 8, but the, it could <laughs> no, be, it it could be pretty close. It definitely does. Dude, like Mega Man 8's voice acting, not to get sidetracked, but with Dr. Light. Oh, my God. Who's clearly just a Japanese man struggling through English lines. And he's literally fumbling his lines and they keep it. They keep it. They keep it. He's like, Dr. Dr. Wild. I'm like, <laughs> what Wiley. the fuck? You couldn't just say like, yeah, let's cut that and do that again. It's so bad. how much? It's so awesome. I love it. <laughs> but thank God. Oh my God. Thank God so, they kept it like that. It's amazing the things that they used to get away with in video games. But yeah, the voice acting is iconic. Not, you know, 
often used. I think people kind of overstate how much voice acting is in Symphony of the Night because of that intro, but I love it. You yeah, know? you don't really get it until, you know, first of all, I love the fact that Maria and Alucard are both searching the, ca- the castle side by side and they keep running into each other. That's really neat because it makes you realize the immense scope of this castle. Like, how big is this place? You know, how seriously, how large is this place that these characters are intermittently running into each other every so often? You know, it just it really just played up the scale of everything. But that yeah, you're right. That's really the only time we ever heard the VO, you know, but VO was a big thing back then. That meant a lot back then. That was that was a lot for us. Yeah. At that time, you're sacrificing a substantial portion of your black disc PS1, you know, disc to put voice acting on it. So good point. You know, keep in mind, Final Fantasy VII, for instance, with no voice acting, it was three discs. So imagine how much space that even highly compressed audio. I mean, it must have taken precious megabytes away from what is, in essence, I think, a half a gigabyte I'm game. Sure, yeah, at most. absolutely. But yeah, I mean, how did we go so long without? You know, that was amazing. How long did I go go so long without asking <laughs> you what is a man? What is a man? And I'm so disappointed because I know that the translation is considered a little rough and stuff like that, but it's so good. A oh, miserable pile of secrets? <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? I'm not even being facetious. Like, that is so unintentionally poetic. It's good shit. It's good shit. And from, I'm not, that's not stealing it from anywhere that I know of, is it? I don't like think so. Like classic literature or something? Not that I know of. You make them your slaves and, what do you, you what does he say? You, something about money is like, you, st- mm. you make them your slaves and steal their souls or something like that. Yeah, something like that. And I'm like, this is all, like, why would you ever rewrite this? Yeah. Even if it's not intentional, it's like Spoonie Bard in Final Fantasy IV. Like, it doesn't really make any sense why Tela calls Edward a Spoonie Bard, but there it is. And it should never be removed from any future no, Final never. Fantasy IV. It's a bad translation. Even if this isn't like exactly what they intended, and obviously we get in Dracula X Chronicles and we're going to get in Castlevania Requiem what they intended, but the writing is like incredible. I don't see that that needed to be redone. Maybe you had people re-perform those same lines, but... Right. You know. But but have you ever seen this in Japanese? I meant to look it up and I, I don't forgot think so. to look it up on YouTube because no. I'm sure it's up there. Maybe Castlevania Requiem has a Japanese track, which would be nice, but... That would be cool, yeah. That would actually be really cool. But what is Dracula even doing? I don't even understand what the fuck Dracula's doing. I was just going to say that. And he's, you know, like you said, he's so nonchalant. It also plays up the scene because Rick, who the hell is this guy? He's walking into this guy's house, into his throne room and just threatening. Like, who the hell is this courageous idiot? Right. Like, you know, so it's like, you know, this clash of the titans here, you know. Oh, it's so good, dude. I can't wait to play it again. I can't wait. Justin Matkowski wrote into us. Justin. And said, aside from being my favorite title for the original PlayStation, one thing that I admire so much about Symphony of the Night is how much it went against the grain. When every developer was seemingly obsessed with the 3D revolution, Castlevania bucked the trend by releasing a flawless 2D side-scroller that has aged far, far better than 99% of its contemporary titles. My question for you, dudes, if, if you could reboot Castlevania, how would you do it? Feel free to give it to a specific dev team. Oh. To- now, this is going to surprise people because I love 2D's Castlevania games and I love side-scrolling Castlevania games a great deal. Metroidvania and classic. I wouldn't mind seeing a 3D Castlevania game again. We got them in Lords of Shadow. The original Lords of Shadow was a fine game. I think the sequel was terrible. Never played that. And obviously people look back at Castlevania 64, like I said, in Legacy of Darkness as not being very good. I think those games are great. I think those games oh, are totally... Oh, you to- like I Castlevania like, I like Castlevania 64. I think it's totally fine. It's I remember a, it's, playing it. It's a first try at something different i don't know what people really expected out of it i think it's not nearly as bad as people thought like i remember getting it for n64 but getting it like when it was in the bargain bin and expecting it to be like fucking atrocious because nintendo power didn't like it and other people didn't like it i was like this is totally fine and then we got the 
3D ones on PlayStation 2, like Legacy of Darkness and all that. Or No, not Legacy of Darkness. That's the N64 one I just said. I, I forget what it's called. But those were fine games. And so I'm not necessarily averse to them going into that direction again. But what would be cool is to have not a, you know, Lords of Shadows type game, which is a little more linear and a little more beat by beat, especially the first one, which was great. But have a Metroidvania style Castlevania game in 3D. Why not? And you know who should make it? From software. And you know why? Because Bloodborne is basically Castlevania. Yes, it is. And when I played that original part of Bloodborne, when you're in the, you know, the gothic town, I'm like, this is fucking Castlevania. This is straight up, straight up Castlevania. And so who should make it from? Of course. Of course they should. There you go. And people have been saying that since Bloodborne came out. I mean, Konami would be wise to lock them down. They are very expensive these days because they are working with so many people and so are so famous now. But that's a team that I think gets it. And I think as much as I don't want to say this because I don't know that it's necessarily true, let's keep Castlevania in Japan. We saw what Castlevania looks like when a Western team, in this case a Spanish team, did it with Lords of Shadow. Keep it in Japan. It goes back to what you were saying with the Bishonen and stuff like that where there's, right, that's the beautiful boy or whatever, yeah. like that style. Yep. There's just certain aesthetic qualities and certain gameplay and certain dynamic choices that need to be made that Japanese studios just had the propensity to make more often that would be right for Castlevania. It would kind of be like giving Mega Man to, you know, a Western studio. There's only certain Western studios that would do it any justice. And I bet you, even if you gave Mega Man to, like, Yacht Club, I don't know that they would do it right. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. So I think that... I agree. There's something to be said about that. Like, let's keep it in Japan... Let's keep it platform agnostic, which might surprise people because I love my PlayStation exclusive. <laughs> but let's keep it platform agnostic and let's do it the right way. And hey, by the way, Any Creates made a fine eight-bit Castlevania game when they made Bloodstain. What was it? Circle? It's not. It's Circle. Circle of the Moon. No, Circle of the Moon is the Castlevania game. It was a total copy. Obviously, it's basically Castlevania three again. It just came out a few months ago. And why not do give Anti Creates the ability to do a sixteen-bit Castlevania game? That would be kind of cool. Be awesome. And I really do believe that this is a test bed. I really do believe Castlevania Requiem is a test bed to see what they should do next. I think that's probably true. I think that they're being very deliberate. I don't think they really want to be in this space anymore. Metal Gear Survive, for instance, is a great example of them kind of half-assing a Metal Gear game to see if they could just do it. And I think that it didn't work very well, you know, with a more online 21st century connectivity kind of, you know, survival mode horde mode kind of thing that they had going on in that game i bought it for nine dollars on on amazon i still haven't even opened it now kyle let me ask you before sure. i forget that has playstation has sony announced any more of the games that are going to be on the playstation classic no konami is still there's still no word on konami games no you would assume symphony of the night's going to be on there i know that some people have expressed concern and i don't remember what symphony of the night's rated i think it might be rated m but at the very least it's rated t yeah it's violent but yeah, we were talking about that because you were playing with your son and yeah. we, were talking, we were talking about how you kind of forgot that it was bloody. Yeah, it's bloody. And, you know, for me, I feel like the concern that some people are expressing with PlayStation Classic that you want to aim more towards, you know, games that are rated E or games that are rated T at the very most. Because if you put M rated games, and I'm not saying Castlevania is because I'm not sure if it is or isn't, I don't remember, but just more adult rated games are going to make the thing harder for people to buy. Although... I really don't think PlayStation Classic is aimed at kids. Like, I was going to say, yeah. I, what's I your don't audience? understand really who PlayStation Classic is aimed at, to be honest, because it's cool, but it's also a lot of these games are already available as PS1 Classics on PS3 and Vita. And there you go. Final Fantasy, like Final Fantasy VII beyond this, it's like, okay, Final Fantasy VII's on fucking everything. So everything. that's not, it literally is now because they just released it. They're, they're going to release it on Switch and Xbox One. It's already on PS4. It's on PS3. It's on Vita. It's on PSP. It's on, you know, 
We don't need any more. <laughs> I have two more questions from the audience, and then we can kind of wrap things up, I think, on Symphony of the Night okay. with final thoughts, if you have any. Ryan Cook wrote in and said, have either of you watched any of the Netflix animated series? And if you have, do you think it's worth giving a shot? And does it stay true to the series? I've not. You have. Yes. Did you watch the second season as well? No. Okay, so just the first season, which just is only the first four episodes, season right? so far. I think so. Yeah, but not, you love it. You like you. you it was very good. well done, very true to all the you know all the Castlevania tropes and all the, the important character bits, and very violent, extremely violent, and it gives you backstory to what you know what Dracula is all about and his motives. You know, basically, which I won't spoil anything if no one's seen it yet. Because we need, we do need that. Yeah, that's fully fleshed out in the series. They did a great job with it. They really did a great job with it. Yeah, very well done. Final question we have comes from Azan. Jack Yorston wrote in a similar question, but we're going to go with Azan's this time. So with the involvement of Iga uh, in Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, will the game be a worthy successor of Symphony of the Night? Or does the game, Bloodstained, need a strong backbone in for... In, I'm sorry, I don't know what this means. In form of Konami to tr- oh, in the form of Konami to truly succeed the expectations of everybody in the gaming industry, including developers, critics, and most importantly, the audience. So what you're asking is, can this game live up to its namesake? And the answer is no. But I think that you can't go in expecting that you're going to get a game as good as Symphony of the Night. It's just not possible. So I think if you get a game that's a good love letter and an ode to it, and if it beats your expectations, in other words, keep your expectations low, and if your expectations are beat, then more power to you. I played a little bit of Ritual of the Night, and, you know, I should note, since we're talking about this more specifically, that I know Iga and I'm friendly with Iga, so you can take what I say with a grain of salt, but I think Ritual of the Night's going to be really great. I just don't think you can get the same feel, the same aesthetic, the same style, the same everything, it being in 2.5D. It's the same reason what I feel about Mega Man 11. I just, I can't get over the graphics, no matter how much I try. And they're beautiful, but it's a cop-out. 2.5D is just a lazy cop-out. <laughs> it's cheaper. It's way cheaper. And it, there's a lack of warmth, and there's just a lack of atmosphere. It's just there's just it's just the way it's going to be. It's just the nature of the aesthetic, you know? I think with this new game, with Ega's new game, I think they do have the opportunity to do something that's more powerful and more memorable musically. I will say that. Symphony of the Night has good music. You know, you have the classical and the techno and the gothic rock and the jazz and the new age and the metal. It's a nice hodgepodge. I see what they were doing there. It's sort of experimental, but it's not memorable. It's all over the place. It's the one aspect of the game that doesn't really know what it wants to be. And I think they could actually go further than their predecessor now with this new game with the music. And I hope they do. You know, I hope they really seize that opportunity. But otherwise, yeah, Colin's right. I mean, a large part of why it's so special is the time it came out in. And you can't discount that. It's not fair to weigh one against the other because part of why Symphony is so great is how well it holds up. And doing that now is just emulating something that came before, you know. So... That's really a big part of it is how well this game holds up after all this time, as we've been saying. Hopefully it takes the opportunity to sort of go try its own stuff out and experiment in its own way and sort of bring something new to the equation, introduce something new to the formula, which would be kind of fun, especially with the music, though. I really hope the music is better because the music is, uh, I don't know, the music is good sometimes in symphony. I especially dig the, you know, the creepier stuff. That goes on, whether it's just the, like the, what we were saying earlier, like the um, confessional booth, 
you know, it's just the chime, the distant chime in the background or something. That always seemed like it was doing the best work when it was like something that was more downplayed. You know, what I wonder about is with Iga's new game is how I guess he does. He has the, you know, he has the ability to sort of play up the religious iconography, right? They don't have to downplay that. So hopefully, you know, hopefully they do that, too, because I think that's an important part of it, too. I agree. I agree with you completely. And I think that the fact that the game has been delayed and kicked out of multiple years now is a sign and a testament that they really want to get this right. And I have to say that I think that a lot of the influence for them really doing this right and taking their time has to do with Mighty Number no. 9 and how, you know, KG and Afune and any creates. I mean, it's impossible to believe that any creates made that game, but they did. They did make that game and it sucks. It's fucking terrible. So I think that they want to be very deliberate with the way that they make the game. I mean, it was really originally supposed to come out last year. It's now going to come out next year from when we're recording this. So 2019. And they even cut some SKUs out because they didn't want to make them anymore, including the Vita SKU, which was, I was really disappointed about. But that was the decision that they made to make it easier for them to make. And so they didn't have to port it, you know, 5,000 times, which is any create specialty because they're putting their games on everything. So I think that they're being very deliberate and very slow and very well-paced and methodical because I think that they realize that this game not only could be the beginning of something incredibly special, but that they have one shot at it and it is going to be compared, intrinsically compared because they really did this themselves with the name and who's making it and all this kind of stuff. I mean, they did it to themselves. So everyone's going to compare it to Symphony of the Night and it's not going to be... I don't want to say it's not going to be a favorable comparison because I don't know that that's true, but it's not going to be a completely kind comparison because it's just not possible to capture that zeitgeist again. We're never going to be able to play Symphony of the Night again for the first time. And even playing Ritual of the Night again, for, or playing Ritual of the Night rather for the first time, is not going to recapture that special something that was there. Just like playing Circle of the Moon wasn't quite as special as playing Symphony of the Night, but it was pretty special. Yeah, you know? pretty cool. And so I want people to keep that in mind that, yeah, they're drawing that comparison. They deserve that comparison. When I review it, I will compare it to that game. But... I want you to temper your expectations. It's not going to be Symphony of the Night because if it is, it suggests that it's going to be one of the greatest games of all time. And I just refuse to believe that that's true. And if it happens to be as good as Symphony of the Night, then holy shit, you kept your expectations low. They were beat. And then you're left with something special and something very exciting, which I think is awesome. That's well said. But I think KG and Afune's experience with Mighty Number no. 9 was incredibly influential on their decision to be quiet and finish the game. Yeah. So there's no target release. I think it's like Q1 or Q2 2019 now. Okay. And I say just, you know, it's never going to be a shit or get off the pot moment for me because they've not done anything wrong yet. If they were like releasing this terrible game and then they, you know, release this game, then I would, I would say that that was a little bit different, but it's, it's not the same, you know, it's, it's, it's just not the same, especially with that prequel, that 8-bit prequel that they released, which was phenomenal and that a lot of people believe will inherently be better and end up being better than the final game, which is possible. But it was a complete copy of Castlevania 3, which I loved. I loved how blatant it was. It was just like, yeah, fuck you. It's amazing how palpable it is. It, feel, it feels so much like it, you know. And speaking of Castlevania 3, which we talked about a great deal, Dig, I do have to say that my favorite boss battle in Symphony of the Night is when you fight Grant and Trevor and you fight Sypha. Yeah. Yes. And they're really like zombified, like not the real versions of them, but it's fucking cool because Alucard's basically fighting his old friends. Yeah. And I... I was like, this is an, so thoughtful. It's so awesome. You know, it's like, so cool. I'm not a huge fan of small universes and things like that happening, but Alucard meeting them makes sense. And it grounds it for Western audiences specifically because Alucard was introduced to us and we only ever saw Alucard in Castlevania 3. So 
to introduce him alongside these other characters that we might know from that series, which at the time, I mean, we're so far removed from these games now, but when Symphony of the Night came out, Castlevania 3 was only seven years old. I mean, that's kind of an extraordinary thing to think about. You wow, know? wow. It wasn't like it was that old. Castlevania 3 was only seven years wow, before that. that's a good point. Yeah. Now it's been almost 30 years, 28 years since Castlevania 3 was released. So, and it's 21 years since Symphony of the Night so, was released. Oh, wow. You know, so time's flying, but I think looking at it through that lens, the appearance of those guys makes a little bit more sense. Absolutely. But I loved that. I mean, I remember seeing that and being like, this is absolutely... It's so cool. Cool as hell. You know? They didn't have to do that. Because they didn't have a lot of throwbacks to games that we re- remember. There might be throwbacks to Rondo in there that I'm not familiar with because I'm barely familiar with Rondo of Blood. But right. There's not a lot of familiar throwbacks in there. And again, I'm not a fan of small universes. I like big things, new things happening. I complain about that with Star Wars all the time, where now people are wondering, or someone had tweeted out yesterday something funny that I saw about the robot, the dead, like Lando's dead assistant robot or whatever. Yeah. Is that personality or anything about that in Lobot's headpiece? And I'm like, no! Oh my god, that's Lobot! <laughs> oh wow! Can you imagine? At first, I was like, that's cool, and then I'm like, no, this is exactly what no, I want. Don't do that. So I think that we're shutting the book quite literally. I just shut my notebook. There you go. You shut your Bible on Symphony of the Night. And you know, if you're listening to this because this just because you listen to Knockback and you like to not miss any episodes and you don't really have any connection to this game, guys, go play it. Oh, it's, you will not be disappointed. I can't imagine anyone playing this game and not loving it. If you like video games, you're going to love it. The only way you wouldn't like it is if you have terrible taste. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's yes. just some things that are just I know exactly true. what you mean. Like, if you don't like Symphony of the Night, I don't even know why you play video games, to be perfectly honest. But hey, teach his own. <laughs> some people like Fortnite, you know? Yeah, do they? And some people have taste. There's just a difference between those two kinds of people. <laughs> Did you see Pat's whole thing? They uh, talked about the story in England that 10% of divorces over there in 2018 so far have been directly related to Fortnite. <laughs> what? Why do people like it so much? I don't know. It's just a battle royale game. It's not even the first one. It's just a battle royale That's game. That's all it is. I don't know. To each his own. It's all good. Whatever, whatever you want to do. Good for Epic. Making tons of money, hand over fist money on that game. Yeah. Did you hear the whole thing they were lamenting back to school because they knew their profits were going to go so far down? Yeah, they're probably sad about that. Does your son have any interest in it? My kids both played it a little bit on Switch. On Switch. I really didn't want my son to play it. I think he's a little too young for it. You know, he's only eight. He just turned eight. Because, you know, you're walking around and get, you're beating the crap out of each other with pickaxes and stuff like that. It's like a little bit, you know, it's like, I don't know, just can you play Mario for a little longer? Or, yeah, just sit down and play Symphony of the Night. He's been playing with you so he can slice some zombies. <laughs> Symphony of the Night is not. I was Hypocrite. a little horrified to, to realize that the game was a little, yeah. When I went back through it, it was a little more violent than I remembered, but <laughs> I love it. But yeah, for him, it's like, you know, the blood, the zombie character. You know, the, yeah, the one that you were saying, like the Michael Myers, type yeah. guy, you know, you split them up and they're like, ah, and it's, it's like a spray of blood coming from their chest. It's like, oh, all right. Beautiful animation, though. So good. Now they can just cop out and do that in 2.5D. Right. So we're we're good there. That's what I love about the game is how deliberate it is in terms of like every animation, Alucard's movement. So fluid when it's it goes backwards so, and it leaves like a uh, little aura. So beautiful. Oh my god, dude. Like the game is just so guys, just go play it. So where is it available? Well, you can play it on PS1. The original PS1 version is where Dagan and I both experienced it. Yep. It's also available on Saturn. And some people like the Saturn version because Maria is playable immediately yes. in that game. But yeah. I will say that Koji Igarashi has basically said that he hates that version of the game. There's, oh, really? There's a couple of areas in the game that are not in the PlayStation version too, which I didn't know. Oh, which I is didn't know that disappointing. Either. It's like, why did the Saturn get the better version of the game? fucking kidding me i want to play there's like nine million saturns in the world you gave them the better version of the game yeah that's strange and saturn was basically dead by the time castlevania came out anyway 
there's that. I guess it had a lot to do with the fact that it was a 32X game when it was called The Bloodletting and all that. So I think that maybe there was some sort of you know Sega connection there. So you can play it on PS1. You can play it on Saturn if you want. I don't know where you'd find a Saturn version. And I don't know that the Saturn version even came out in the States, so you'd be playing a Japanese version of the game. Oh, that's a good question. I'm not sure about it's that. It's available on Xbox 360. I don't think it's backwards compatible with Xbox One, so you'd have to play it on Xbox 360. It is a very random and kind of stealth release from like 2007 that Konami put up there. It does have achievements. It's on PSP in forms of Dracula X Chronicles. I am not sure that that version of the game is available on Vita, but it might be. So you can play the ported version of that. You can play the PS1 Classic of Symphony of the Night on PS3 or PS Vita. And, of course, Castlevania Requiem, which puts Rondo of Blood and Symphony of the Night together. It is basically a port of the PSP Dracula X Chronicles. will be on PS4 pretty much by the time or around the time that this goes live. So lots of different ways for you to experience it. And I really hope, and I know Dagan does too, that we hope that you choose to experience it if you haven't. And if you have experienced it and it's been a while, go back and jump back in. I'm telling you, this is the quintessential, this is the apex of video games. It's so good. Really, really fantastic. And shout out to the, we talked about the graphics, we talked about the animation and the, the music, but... Shout out to the sound design in this game. The sound effects. It's really, I, I love it. It's, it has really good sound design. Very crisp, you know, it adds to the atmosphere. Very good stuff. Kyle? Yes. You're the worst. Yes, let's do it. Let's do it. You want to explain the new segment? No, before Colin yeah. explains our new, our new segment, I'm just going to say lightning round. I think you guys kind of dig it. So we're going to take it away. <laughs> so we won't do it we're this like round. We won't do it. Right. You guys like this? Well, forget it. So we're going to do... We're gonna, that's it. It's over. We're going to do dad jokes at the beginning of these, and we'll do this new segment at the end. And it's called You're the Worst. Well, Dagan came up with this idea of You're the Worst. He emailed me one night. We're always emailing at very strange hours. And... <laughs> You know, he came up with this idea of saying, like, well, let's just do something where it's, we'll call it you're the worst. And it's just what is the worst of something that we bring up? Like, what is the, and you brought up the example of like, what is the worst ice cream flavor? Right. Which, of course, is anything that's not vanilla. And we'll ask worst. each other. Right. Exactly. I want to involve Kyle in this one. Yeah, well, that's fine. I mean, I have no problem not being involved. But... <laughs> so you need more work to do. So, yeah, let's do more work. That's great. <laughs> so the inaugural version of your worst is here attached to the Symphony of the Night episode of Knockback. And do you want to kick off, Dagan? Uh, I'll kick it off, and these are going to be ran- these are probably mostly be random. I won't try to we won't try to tie these into the theme of the episode. This is just a little offshoot for fun. Okay, Kyle, what in your opinion is the worst hobby? That's a broad question. Stamp collecting. <laughs> that was oh my. God. <laughs> I'm you going just, with my gut. Instinct. You just knew stamp yeah. collecting. That's it. I mean, it has to be. I, it's pretty bad. Let me tell you this. Okay. I go to the post office a lot. I have a little bit of a rapport with the women at the post office that I talk to there. And every once in a while, you know, I buy like those 100 stamp spools because I send out so much shit yeah. to the audience. That If you guys don't know, like the higher end patrons receive like mailers from me every month, whether it's like a postcard. I sent out like a bunch of stickers last month and we sent out Dagan's art sometimes. So I'm, I'm going through a bunch of postage and they've asked me multiple times like, oh, they like hand me a spool of like some beat up American flag ones and we're like, oh, do you care about this? And I'm like, what the fuck do I care? And like, you'd be surprised, you know, because there's dorks out there that are collecting stamps and I just can't abide by it anymore. It's, it's 2018. You'd be surprised. <laughs> and I wanted to be like, you know what? Uh, nothing surprised. I wouldn't me. be. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. So I'm going to say stamp collecting is the worst. All right. Good answer. What is your answer? No, you oh, got to oh, so, ask me one. Okay, so you won't answer your own question. I won't answer okay. my own. Nah. All right. What is the worst of the four main professional sports in the United States? Basketball, baseball, hockey, and football. The worst of those? Yep. 
I was going to throw soccer in there, but that because MLS is kind of coming up big, but then soccer would win automatically. I'm so sorry. let's make it more. Let's make it harder. Baseball, okay. hockey, football, baseball, hockey, football, and basketball. Okay. The worst sport. I'm not even saying the worst league. I'm going to break your heart. I'm going to say hockey. Oh, that is that is. I'm just not a hockey guy. That's crazy. It was going to be between hockey and football. Oh my god. I so kind of like no taste. <laughs> Like, was it going to be baseball? Because that's a sport yeah, well, I actually like. I would say basketball. Basketball, my you would say basketball. Yeah, well, See, I shouldn't be answering. My son's taking an interest an interest in it, so I can't say basketball. It's a tough question because I love all four sports. You do? I think they're great. But if you had a, if I had to kill one, I would kill basketball. I would absolutely kill basketball. Yeah. Do you have the least fun playing that of the four? I got to be honest with you. I think I probably have the least fun playing baseball. Yeah. Yeah. I a love lot of baseball. people would say that. No, a lot of people would say that. Basketball's a great sport. I think the NBA is the worst league. Hmm. There's the least parody in it. Like, they always joke around when I watch Pardon the Interruption. Like, they're like, well, we already know that the Warriors and the Lakers now, because LeBron's and the Lakers, will be in the Western Conference That's Finals. Right. That's right. Back in the day, like, everyone, it was, wasn't it the Cavaliers and the Warriors, like, three years in a row in the Finals? Like, there's no parody there at all. Like, well, no. in, in hockey and in baseball, the seasons are so long that anything can happen in 82 or 162 games. And in football, every game is so consequential. And the idea of any given Sunday is so prevalent that you have no idea who's going to be good and who's going to be bad. You know, who who would have thought, you know, I knew the Giants were going to be bad this year, but who thought they were going to be one in five? I mean, yeah, you, know, you never know. You have to see how it plays out. Yeah, it's, it's funny how basketball one player could carry it as well or have so much of have such a profound effect on it. Yeah, I think your team in basketball is only 13 players or something like that. I think yeah. that's true. So... And hockey, it's 23. And football, it's 52. I mean, there's just a lot more of a dynamic there. And baseball, it's huge, too. So with your bullpen and stuff. So Right. That's right. I guess it's two different questions because we're talking about leagues and sports. I think in terms of leagues, I would say NBA. And in terms of sports, I would say baseball. Because I think basketball is a great sport. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's, and it's fun to play. You know, I tweeted out just as an aside. And I know you, you liked it, I think. So I think you saw it. But the Yankees losing to the Red Sox oh, in yeah. the divisional round. It awoke it. It woke something in me. So weird, like just for a, day, a night where I was like, I really hate the Red Sox. Your hatred, yeah. God, it's I ingrained. Stand, I can't stand them. I can't. Either. I can't stand David Ortiz's dumb fucking face uh. when he's on TV now, because now they have that meme that the Yankees lose or whatever. Yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh god, man. get out of here, dude. Uh, I can't. It's inherent in you, just like you know, Red Sox fans are trained to hate. It's Fox and the Hound, you know. Red Sox fans are trained to hate the Yankees. This is how we were raised. It's part of you know. It's nothing against Boston or Massachusetts. It's the Red Sox. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my girlfriend's a huge Red Sox fan and a huge Patriots fan, and we we somehow find peace. Together. I'll tell you a funny story, actually. Please. We went to the pumpkin patch to pick pumpkins with the kids a weekend ago, two weekends ago. We were coming in, and a guy was leaving with his family, and he had tickets left over, you know, for like the petting zoo, corn maze or whatever. And he's like, oh, here, you guys want these tickets? Like, they're left over. He had a Boston, he had a Red Sox hat on, and he had a Red Sox jersey on. And I was like, oh, thanks so much, man, whatever. And I was like, I guess you, you probably wouldn't have given this to me if you knew I was a Yankees fan. <laughs> and he went to take them back from me. He got mad. Did he, he got, really? Yeah, he like got a, pissed. And you he wouldn't like, give them oh. back? Like, I was expecting the guy to laugh. And he was like, oh, like he was, but he wasn't saying it in a playful way. He was like saying it like, oh, sh- great. And then my wife got mad at me like, why did you say that? <laughs> <laughs> he went, like he turned around to like, and his wife was kind of like pulling at him or whatever. And I just thought the guy was going to laugh because I thought it was funny to right. say it. But then I was like, oh, no, he was ser- he was serious. He was dead serious. He was one of those guys that hate the Yankee fans. Well, yeah. I know those people very well. I lived in Boston for five years. <laughs> yes, you and, do. Uh, You're very fam- intimate with that. Oh, my God, dude. No, <laughs> I mean, Red Sox, Yankee games are the most hostile things I've ever been to in my Oof, life. So ever. bad. Ever, ever. I would never go again. Like. In Fenway. No, never. 
I've gone many times. It's bad in Yankee Stadium. I just didn't. I know it is. That's why I was trying to tell Aaron because <laughs> it's bad. Aaron was saying that I'm like we we talk about Jets games too, and Jets games are really hostile to Patriots fans. And I was telling her about that. I'm like, you're not to a Jet. Like I, you can root for them if you want, but like you're not wearing a jersey. Like I see what happens to people in these in these at these games, right? And I like sitting in the bleachers at Yankee Stadium. I'm like, if you think you're going to sit in the fucking bleachers with a Red Sox hat on at Yankee Stadium, you have another thing coming. You know? Like, oh, no, it's It's crazy. just not going to happen. You know, like, something horrible is going to happen to you. It's, it's not. Your, your odds aren't good. Did you see there was one viral video? Oh, that's it. All right. Well, we're not, you're not mic'd up, Aaron, so we can't, we can't hear you. <laughs> there, was a, there was a video going around. Aaron might have seen a viral video. From this year in Fenway, there was a little girl and her dad. They were dressed in Yankees gear. She was like three or four. And a Red Sox fan caught a fly ball and handed it to her. And she went back and bear hugged the guy. It was like the cutest thing. So once in a while, positive things could happen. Oh, I, thought, I thought that was going to go a different direction. I thought, no, no, I thought no. she was going to throw it back. <laughs> I would have been amazing. <laughs> he hands her the foul ball and she throws it back. <laughs> Which is my favorite tradition I in baseball. That. I haven't seen that in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Throwing it back. <laughs> so good. Baseball fandom is really funny. I, I miss it sometimes. It's just I don't have the patience for it anymore because a lot of people are always confused. A lot of people don't know me from that era. You know, I was a diehard Yankee fan oh, yeah. from the late 80s through my college years and even into my years in San Francisco. I wore a Yankee hat every day. Everyone knew that I was obsessed with them. There were years where I watched every game, every game in That's college. And I had games. and I had, you know, an MLB TV account and I had like these papers on my wall and I would keep track of the scores yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And it's just too much. It's just too much to pay attention to. Football is so easy, you know, because it's one game a week. One game a week. And hockey, I watch weeks. probably four out of five Islander games. I mean, I, I make time to watch them. How many so. hockey games are there in a 82. Season? That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Over how many months? The hockey season is long. It's from September to like late September to like May ish, April ish. Oh, that is like long. April, I guess mid April, and then the playoffs start. Oh, that and the is Islanders oh, never in the playoffs. The playoffs on top of that. Yeah, hockey oh, season shit. never ends. Yeah, the hockey season, including the finals, goes from it's like September to June. <laughs> well, add if you add golf into the mix, I'm still saying hockey's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fucking deep insult. I can't believe that. That's unbelievable. That's an unbelievable. I'm sorry, that's dude. an unbelievable offense. That's not right. I don't care. It doesn't matter. You're entitled to your opinions. Dang it. Thank you for your time. Appreciate you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you all out there for listening to us. We're back for Wave 5. We're very excited to be back for this. Remember, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. I hope you decide to do that, whether you can for a little bit amount of money, whatever makes most sense for you, a dollar, two dollars, five dollars a month. It gives you all sorts of different perks, exclusive podcasts, the ability to submit your questions that are read on the air, and comments and concerns, of course, as Dagan likes when I say. And early <laughs> ad-free access to all of our podcasts, including not only Knockback, but Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and even a little bit of side quest here and there, which is my YouTube channel. So thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan-supported over at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, Michael Betts, Eric Bishop, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Alex Cabrera, Brian Cacciatolo, Will Caldwell, Jason Camargo, Luis Cancato, William O'Carroll, Matthew Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chand, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Cutter Crow, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amore, Daniel Delanicos, Travis DePew, Mitchell Durkash, David Ellis, Albert Escobar, Brian Fink, Joe Finelli, 
Eric Finkenbeiner, Stefano Fontana, Fodios Frangos, Connor Gazian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem El Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, David S. Graham, Josh Gravelick, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Asa Haas, Azan Isa Al Raisi, Josh Yeager, Paul Joyce, Greg Julifs, Jeremy Key, John Klott, Kevin Komaki, Taylor Christian Laudrin, Christian Larson, Jackson Lastuka, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Ashlyn Lee, Anthony Lencioni, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Mark Liberto, Aaron Litwiller, Lewin Ray Loper, Josh M, Ryan T. Mandel, Joe McPartland, Wyatt McVeigh, Albert Miranda, Patrick Malloy, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Todd Paxson, Brendan Peavy, Marius Scarson Peterson, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Jonathan Rice, Toby D. Riemenschneider, Austin Riley, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, A. G. Rowe, Matthew Savoy, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Toby Schutman, Riley Smith, Gerard Stewave, Stephen Summingit, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Tam Tran, Dan Vale, Adam Van Kuren, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Dade Michael, Edward Went, Mike Wayant, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Mad Mock Media, Beric, Mubarak, Richter86, Dav9834, Chris, Wyatt Henry, Donk2015, and Random Guy Radio.